Hey everybody and welcome to the 5 Bytes Podcast. I'm your host, Rory Monahan. The podcast, as always, is brought to you by my sponsors, Policy Pack Software, now part of Networks, where you use group policy or MDM to remove admin rights, manage and lockdown applications, Java, browsers, and mitigate ransomware, plus more. And of course, also brought to you by Liquidware, the innovator in adaptive workspace management solutions. And also brought to you by ControlUp, end-to-end digital experience management for the work-from-anywhere era. Control up. Happy users, happy IT. If you enjoy the show each week, you have these awesome sponsors to thank. And now for some news. The much-talked-about hot-patching feature is now generally available as part of the Azure Auto Manage for Windows Server. The release notes state this capability allows you to patch and install updates to your Windows Server Azure Edition Core Virtual Machines on Azure without requiring a reboot. Together with Azure Auto Manage and included Azure orchestrated patching, keeping your VMs up to date will now be easier and faster than ever. Obviously a huge barrier to patch management and one of the big needs for doing patching and having change control is the disruption, that downtime required in order to do the reboots, which particularly from Windows Server 2016, those reboots took a long, long time. Well, with hot patching for some patches, you won't require a reboot anymore. Listed in the notes, some of the benefits of running a Windows Server Azure Edition VM with hot patching includes higher availability with fewer reboots, faster deployment of updates as the patches are smaller, install faster, and have easier patch orchestration with Azure Update Manager, and also better protection as hot patch packages install faster without the need to schedule a reboot, decreasing the window of vulnerability after a Windows security update is released. So I read that verbatim from the announcement That was really three bullet points, and two of them were kind of making the same point, but giving different benefits for the same one. So yeah, the fewer reboots helps in multiple ways. Now, there are some important considerations. If you would like to use the hot patching feature and running an Azure Edition VM with hot patching, reboots are still required to install updates that are not included in the hot patch program and reboots are required periodically after a new baseline has been installed to keep the VM in sync with patches included in the latest cumulative update. Should you need to install an update outside the hot patch program, you can disable and unenroll hot patching on a VM and revert the VM to typical update behavior for Windows Server. You can then re-enroll the VM in hot patching at a later time. So when I first heard about hot patching it sounded like this is going to be awesome great revelation and maybe it still will be Um, I'll have to see how many patches will be hot patches or applicable to hot patching versus those that are the more traditional patches that require a reboot I'm hoping the majority will be capable of leveraging the hot patching feature and if you'd like to try it out for yourself, Microsoft have also created and shared a guide, and I'll share a link to that with this episode, 
which is episode 218, and you'll find that on 5bytespodcast.com under reference links for this episode. ZDNet reported this week that Microsoft may require Windows 11 Pro users to have an internet connection and to sign in using a Microsoft account for personal use. Current test build version 22557 requires it now and includes information in the notes for that update that it may be required in the future for actual Windows 11 releases. The report suggests the requirement to be online when setting up the Windows 11 home version had seemingly just been accepted by the majority without complaint because it is already required for Windows 11 home. Now I assume since this will be pro, but when set up with personal use, that it could be the same case that there's not going to be a whole lot of complaints. But I guess it probably depends on how it's being implemented and also this all depends on whether or not Microsoft decides to actually proceed and require online for these pro editions in the future. This is just a test build. ZDNet also reported this week that Salesforce have announced it is putting a greater focus on tackling climate change, making sustainability one of its core company values. The report suggests that means taking steps to hold executives, suppliers, and customers accountable for their carbon footprint. They said to help customers measure their carbon footprint, Salesforce is making its Net Zero Cloud version 2 product generally available globally. The Net Zero Cloud helps companies across industries report and track sustainability data, helping them become net zero organizations that eliminate as much carbon in the atmosphere as they produce. So that all sounds pretty good. It's good that they're putting this product out there that will help others and also good that they're committing to this as an organization. It'll be interesting, like it says, hold executives accountable and customers accountable too. I wonder, does that mean that Salesforce executives will not be flying to meet up with customers? And if customers ask for it to be in person, they're going to push back. That would be very, very interesting. I think that's something that we probably all should be doing because it's an easy win. Do you really get much more out of a face-to-face one or two hour meetup with a vendor? I don't think so personally. And for their part, Google on Wednesday unveiled their Carbon Sense Suite, which is said to be a collection of features to help customers accurately understand and report on carbon emissions and hopefully reduce them. It includes a carbon footprint feature, which helps measure the gross carbon emissions of an organization's Google Cloud usage. And it also includes low carbon signals that lets users choose cleaner regions to run their workloads. That actually sounds really, really interesting. Google says there are over 600,000 gross kgs of CO2e in seemingly idle projects across Google Cloud that customers can now more easily identify and remove. So that's actually pretty good. If they can actually identify idle workloads for customers and tell them, hey, this is idle, remove it. I mean, that's probably Google giving up some money for hosting these idle resources, but it's better that the customer not pay that money and also just reduce the carbon footprint overall. And Microsoft also got on the action. Earlier this week, they extended their emissions impact dashboard tool in Microsoft 365, which allows organizations to quantify the greenhouse gas emissions associated with their usage of Microsoft 365 applications. 
So you may recall that I covered that in the Microsoft Ignite announcements from last year. So hopefully this isn't just window dressing and there is actually a commitment from these companies to do their part to reduce carbon emissions. Only time will tell. This week, Slack had some major problems or major disruptions. On Tuesday, users were widely reporting that certain features within Slack were not working. There was an update from Slack suggesting that a configuration change inadvertently led to a sudden increase in activity on their database infrastructure. And due to the increased activity, the affected databases failed to serve incoming requests to connect to Slack. They said they introduced tighter rate limits on connection requests to reduce the load on the system. And this meant that some people could not access Slack at all, but also that Slack would continue working for those who were already connected. Now I was already connected and I could send messages, direct messages, no problem. But if I tried to refresh the threads or go into a channel, that's when it didn't work. So maybe they mean connected in and viewing a channel already or a thread. I'm not sure, but definitely wasn't working for me. Now, at the time I recorded this episode, the status page still showed that there were some services being disrupted. I've been using Slack for the last few hours and it seems to be working for me, but the status reflects that maybe it's not fully returned for everyone yet. They say if you'd like to receive a full root cause analysis report, you can reach out to them at feedback at slack.com to request one which is kind of odd. Why not just publish it? But hey, whatever. But yeah, <laughs> the short of it is, if you're using Slack this week, you probably noticed some problems and hopefully it'll be remedied soon. At the time of this recording, it seems to still be going on. VMware Horizon Next Generation is now in limited availability. Now, limited availability is said to be in a production state but only available to select qualified customers. So obviously very different to general availability. This is off the back of the VMworld announcement where VMware announced the next generation hybrid desktop as a service architecture for VMware Horizon. And they suggest in this announcement that this will eventually become the single platform on which all Horizon environments are built, regardless of whether they run natively in the cloud or on a VMware SDDC. This next generation platform leverages a new concept called the Horizon Edge that moves most of the Horizon infrastructure components that traditionally run in a customer environment to the Horizon control plane, resulting in significantly lower infrastructure costs for customers and increasing ability to deliver a comprehensive cloud service. Now, some of the promised features and enhancements sound promising to me including improved visibility, troubleshooting, automation, and a seamless hybrid and multi-cloud experience. VMware have said over the next few weeks they'll be digging deeper into the nuts and bolts of it all, so say stay tuned to the VMware EUC blogs and VMware Tech Zone to read more. Michael Wenger tweeted this week that the newer HPE server generations coming in autumn won't support Citrix hypervisor anymore. He also goes on to say that AMD and Intel won't support Citrix hypervisor anymore either. I have not seen this verified, but if you use Citrix hypervisor, it could be worth reaching out to your vendor of choice to confirm you will continue to get support on newer hardware. Michael suggests that he's heard this 
directly from HPE themselves. So perhaps it's not something they've put publicly on the internet yet, but they're telling customers privately. So probably one worth having a conversation if you're a HPE customer, or even if you're using other hardware, just to make sure that you're supported going forward in future. Microsoft announced that Microsoft Defender for Cloud now also comes with native protection for Google Cloud platform environments, providing security recommendations and threat detection across clouds. Defender for Cloud is a security solution that monitors cloud services for threats, makes recommendations to harden security posture, and detects and warns of vulnerabilities in protected multi-cloud and hybrid environments. BleepyComputer.com reports that Defender for Cloud's GCP support comes with out-of-the-box suggestions that make it simple to configure GCP environments following security standards, such as Center for Internet Security Benchmarks, Protection for Critical Workloads Running on GCP, and others. Microsoft's Corporate Vice President of Microsoft Security Compliance and Identity, Vasu Jackal, said, quote, with GCP support, Microsoft is now the only cloud provider with native multi-cloud protection for the industry's top three platforms, Microsoft Azure, Amazon Web Services, and now GCP. If you want more information on this and how to connect your GCP accounts, you can find that at Microsoft's support website. There's a cool new citations feature in Microsoft Edge that is now in preview. And this gives students a better way to manage and generate citations as they research online. If you have citations turned on, Edge automatically generates full and in-text citations in multiple citation styles, including MLA, Chicago, APA, 7, and more. This way, learners can stay focused on their research and be prepared once they compile it into a final deliverable. Now, an important note here is that currently, Automatically extracting and creating citations is supported for a fixed number of academic websites and research journals. This may be expanded in future to other sites and journals. And for sites that are not supported, users can manually add the required information to, to generate citations. And the citations feature is available in preview in Edge, Canary, and Dev Channels from version 95 and higher. WindowsCentral.com reported that Intel launched its P and U series for performance-thin and light laptops and those with modern foldable PC designs. While the chips are now official, customers won't have to wait too long to find them in actual new laptops, and Intel expects OEMs to begin shipping devices starting in March. And those partners include Acer, Asus, Dell, Fujitsu, HP, Lenovo, LG, MSI, NEC, Samsung, and others. Just a quick rundown on the specs of these processors. They'll be using the all-new core architecture with up to 14 cores and 20 threads, integrated Intel Iris XE graphics with up to 96 EU, support for DDR5 and DDR4 RAM, PCI version 4 up to 8 lanes, up to 16 CPU PCIe 5.0 lanes, integrated Wi-Fi 6E, integrated USB 3.2 generation 2x2, Thunderbolt 4, USB audio offload, Intel Optane Memory H20, Intel Deep Learning Boost, Intel Evo Designs 3rd generation, Gaussian and Neural Accelerator version 3 and more. 
Some of the first laptops featuring these processors will likely come from Lenovo, Dell, and HP with substantially improved performance and all-day battery life. They likely still won't catch Apple's M1 though. And from what I'm reading, it appears on paper at least that these chips represent a major improvement for Intel chips in terms of power, performance, and efficiency, but it just remains to be seen how these compare to the competitors' chips. Malicious hackers are targeting Office 365 users through MFA fatigue attacks, bombarding victims with two-factor authentication push notifications to trick them into authenticating their login attempts. MFA fatigue is the name given to a technique used by adversaries to flood a user's authentication app with push notifications in the hope that they'll just accept and therefore enable an attacker to gain entry to an account or a device. This is something I've actually been bringing up on the podcast for about a year now, I believe. The more MFA users have to interact with in their day-to-day job, the more complacent they may get, or at least that was my feeling. They may not check or question the MFA prompt and just chalk it up to maybe, oh, well, Teams does this every once in a while and wants me to re-authenticate, or maybe Outlook wants me to re-authenticate or something else like that. Mandiant have also reported an almost tailgating type of effect, you know, in pen testing where pen testers just tailgate behind someone going in the door of an office building, just walk in as they keep the door open. Well, where a user may get a legitimate MFA request and they accept it and that is legitimate, they were expecting that when they were logging into something. Well, attackers may see a login attempt and then quickly attempt a login themselves with known good credentials and that will generate another MFA on someone's phone and they'll just think oh that's weird I got a second MFA and just accept it because they think it's related to their own login. Now coupling this MFA trickery with brute force to find the correct passwords for users with MFA could lead to successful attacks. So we've heard plenty of times that yep definitely MFA everything however it is not going to give you complete security. And as I've kind of been saying, I think the more MFA you have, the more complacent you're likely to get as well. A malware named Electron Bot has found its way into Microsoft's official store through clones of popular games such as Subway Surfer and Temple Run, leading to the infection of roughly 5,000 computers in Sweden, Israel, Spain, and Bermuda, according to a bleepingcomputer.com report. They say the malware, spotted and analyzed by cyber intelligence firm Checkpoint, is a backdoor that gives adversaries complete control over compromised machines, supporting remote command execution and real-time interactions. The goal, apparently, of the threat actors is social media promotion and click fraud, which they achieve by controlling social media accounts on Facebook, Google, YouTube, and SoundCloud, as Electron Bot supports new account registration, commenting, and liking on these platforms. I mean, the the uh, level of access they seem to get from this to do that seems a little odd, but we are living in odd times, I guess. Definitely serves as a bit of a black eye for Microsoft Store, though. I know they wanted to get a lot of apps in there to make it show like it had value a few years ago, but they really need to clean it up. This week, Ars Technica reported that hackers aligned with the government of Iran are exploiting the critical Log4j vulnerability to infect unpatched VMware users with ransomware. So, 
it's been a few months now that vulnerable VMware customers have been targeted. If you haven't gone out and made sure that you're protected, definitely do that. And given the sad events of this week, it is likely also not a surprise that Ukraine has been hit by multiple forms of malware, resulting in many machines being wiped completely. Though Russia has denied such attacks so far, obviously in this instance, this is also a suspected case of state attackers, and the main suspect is Russia. I don't want to talk about politics on the podcast, but sometimes data compliance stories and infosec stories make it somewhat unavoidable. I'd just like to say that I wish well to all people who are affected by the horrible events of this week. Ghacks.net have reported that Microsoft's KB5010414 update is now in preview and it introduces new features for Windows 11 including the Amazon App Store preview to try Android games and apps, taskbar refinements, and media player app plus more. If you'd like to check out these upcoming features on Windows 11, install the preview update. Probably best to do it on a VM in my opinion. And this week, my show sponsor and my employer, ControlUp, released version 8.6 of their products. And this brings some really awesome new Microsoft Azure metrics. So you see relevant Azure metrics related to things like cost, health, configuration, and also some metadata related to subscriptions, resource groups, virtual machines, and virtual disks. In addition to this, there's also some other really great Azure and AVD features that I hope to share in a webinar next week on March 1st at 10 a.m. Central European time. So if you'd like to see demos of all this, come to that webinar that I'll be speaking and demoing at. But some of the other features, just a quick rundown, but the scheduled triggers feature that was first introduced in version 8.5 gets a much more granular set of scheduling options. So you can now schedule like monthly, weekly, daily, per minute, one time only and over a set period. The awesome remote DX that shows you the last mile allows you to see latency from a user's own laptop to their home router, from their home router out to the internet, and also just from their laptop all the way through to their virtual desktop or RDSH. But this now supports Microsoft RDS and Azure virtual desktop environments running on Windows. That's just some of the great features for a full feature breakdown. Check out the release notes for yourself, and I'll share that with this episode of the podcast at 5bytespodcast.com under reference links for episode 218. Hector Martin shared a really great thread on Twitter this week. He states when testing Apple's NVMe drives that they were surprised to see that the performance was worse than on some HDDs. He said they couldn't understand because when testing the drives from within a macOS session, they found them to be very performant. But what they discovered is that allegedly on Linux, when using the fsync function for testing, the function will both flush writes to the drive and ask it to flush its write cache to stable storage. But on macOS, the fsync function only flushes writes to the drive. Instead, providing an f full sync operation to do what fsync's function does on Linux. So effectively, they say the macOS cheats on benchmarks. So Apple's drive is faster than all others without cache flushes, 
but it is more than three times slower than a lowly SATA SSD at flushing its cache. So when operating the same as others, it appears to be slower. So it kind of sounds bad just on the surface of things, but if you're getting the performance you want when running on a Mac OS, you may be thinking, well, why should I care? Well, Hector goes on to explain that the way the drives are configured for use on macOS compromises on data durability and, and integrity as the flushing of the cache routinely is important. There is more to this included in his mega thread about some other choices that Apple appears to have made. And I encourage you to check it out and follow Hector on Twitter for more. And he's at Marsan, M-A-R-C-A-N 42. There's a new beta version of the PBS Admin Toolkit, and it now supports the Evergreen tool. Some of the things you can do now is execute the BISF, if you're using that in your environment. You can auto-execute the Evergreen script, auto-install Windows updates, create new VDisk version, and Bootmaster, plus much more. So I think it's a pretty good week to end the news roundup for the week on one of those fun, bizarre stories. So ZDNet reported this week that a father who used a signal jammer to rein in his children's internet use managed to wipe out an entire town's connectivity by mistake. A mobile carrier in France detected odd signal drops that were impacting the telephone and internet services of residents in a French town. The carrier made a complaint to the French Agency Nationale des Frequences. <laughs> I never took French in school. I'm sorry for that butchering of it. I'm assuming it's for frequencies. <laughs> but the organization is responsible for managing radio frequencies in the country. So a better way to say it would be that the carrier made a complaint to the organization who's responsible for managing radio frequencies in France. Anyway, I should have just said that. Anyway, according to this agency, there was one strange detail that stood out in the report. Services were cut consistently from midnight to roughly around 3 a.m. every day. So that agency sent an employee out while everyone was still asleep to walk the streets and investigate. While the examiner watched the clock tick over to midnight, their spectrum analyzer equipment took on a familiar shape that revealed a jammer was in use. The waves emitted by the device were followed to a house in a neighboring town. The next day, one of the residents admitted responsibility and revealed that he had purchased a multi-band jammer to prevent his teenage children from going online at night without permission. The father claimed that his teenagers had become addicted to social media and browsing the web since the start of the pandemic, a situation potentially made worse due to social restrictions and lockdowns. I think we can all relate to that. Well, the jammer was intended to stop them from covertly using their smartphones to go online, but caused havoc for a neighboring town. And unfortunately for the well-meaning father, the jammer is illegal in France. So he faces a maximum fine of 30,000 euros and possibly even a jail term of up to six months. You may recall a story last year that I covered about a Welshman's dated television set causing outages in the town. And similarly, a techie had to go through the town and try to figure out where the signal was coming from that was causing havoc for the entire village. So pretty similar. It's just the wild and wonderful world of technology that we live in. And now a weekly webinar. 
So I already mentioned it, but on March 1st at 10 a.m. Central European time, I'll be going through ControlUp's new Azure metrics and some other really cool Azure and AVD related goodies too, like the Remote DX feature, some really cool script-based actions, and more. So if you'd like to learn that or just see a demo of some really cool tech, come along and I'll share a link so you can register with this episode, which again, you'll find at fivebytespodcast.com or you could even check out the description on your podcast platform of choice to get the link. And now this episode's scripts, tricks, and tips. The awesome James Kinden published a new blog post on shrinking an Azure OS disk to enable ephemeral capability. So if you want those cheaper kind of tearaway disks to use, but you maybe have a large OS disk, check out this blog post. It should really help you out. I also saw a really great blog post on the Microsoft tech community this week on how to get started with with HTTP requests in Power Automate. So I'm a big fan of Power Automate and just robotic process automation tools in general. So if you'd like to execute HTTP requests to maybe download something as part of your Power Automate flow or possibly execute some sort of API, check this out. Rudy Oms blogged about remote wipe of Windows 10 and 11 devices in Intune and how he noticed some weird and awful behavior when wiping Windows 10 and 11 devices with Intune, including some really suspect behavior related to user data. So if you're relying on Intune or Microsoft Endpoint Configuration Manager to remotely wipe devices, you might want to check out this article to see what each action available might do to that user data. Darkcoder SC on GitHub shared a power run as system tool that he's created that allows you to run an application as system with interactive system process support. And this doesn't require you to have any external tools, probably like PS exec and doesn't require a Microsoft service. It spawns an NT authority system process using the windows task scheduler, then upgrades to interactive system process using win APIs. Seems like a pretty interesting way to do it. For my uses, I think I'm probably fine using PSXEC, but maybe this would have some really cool uses that I don't yet know about, at least can't think of it in my mind. So this this episode seems to be running long, although maybe when I edit it will be shorter, so I'm just going to run through the last few very quickly. I also saw a cool blog post about MECM and uninstalling applications using configuration items and baselines. I'll share that. The awesome Aaron Parker shared an example of a logic app that he built that finds Windows 11 compatible devices or devices that are already running Windows 11 and updates target Azure AD groups, enabling the target of feature update rings within Intune. So very cool use of logic apps. I also saw a pretty cool blog post on creating a bootable Windows 10 autopilot device using PowerShell. Autopilot's all the rage with people working remotely and now it's been so long that Hardware refreshes are likely coming up or already surpassed and needed. There was another great Microsoft Tech Community blog, this time on running Microsoft Sentinel playbooks from workbooks on demand. And finally, kind of in that same vein a little bit, Control Up Scalpy's Honeycomb API has been available for a little while and I created a blog post where I use the API and actually integrate with my Power Automate flows. So I have a flow that's basically automating a server build using RPAs. And at the end of that, I'm also executing 
a simple script within my flow to create a Scout B Scout to do proactive monitoring of that server right after it's been built. If you'd like to see that, I'll share that with this link as I do with everything that I talk about on each episode of the podcast. Well, like I said, I think that's a longer episode than usual. Maybe it won't be once I've edited it. And if you managed to make it through the whole thing, thank you so much. Thank you for your support. And I will catch you next week.